When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. back to Unshaken. This is part two of our lesson on Alma 36 to 38. In part one, we spent our time with Helaman as Alma shared his conversion story with him in 36 and then helped him understand the importance of the scriptures as he was ready to pass that baton to his son in chapter 37. In fact, seeing those two principles side by side reminds me of something a student of mine once told me years ago in seminary. He said that of all the things his father wanted to teach his children, the two most important ones He wanted them to know how to work and how to repent. And that really struck me at the time as a young father myself. I thought, wow, those two really do kind of sum it up, don't they? How to repent. Well, that's faith unto repentance. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's hope that I can be changed in spite of my mistakes. And how to work, how to serve, how to live, how to do. Faith and works, that's right there. I thought that was pretty powerful advice. And if you think about that, Alma 36, dad is teaching son how to repent. And Alma 37, dad is teaching son how to work, specifically in the roles that he would fulfill as prophet and scriptorian in his father's place. Well, Alma chapter 38 is Alma's message to his son Shiblon. And it's the shortest of the messages to the three. Helaman gets a lot and it's all positive. Corianton gets uh, even more. And a lot of it's kind of rough. We'll see that next week. And there in the middle is Shiblon. He kind of gets lost in the shuffle somewhat. It's like if we're trying to draw the line and just say there's good people and bad people, which is an overgeneralization. Then we've got Helaman on one side and Corianton on the other. The saint and the sinner. Well, where's Shiblon come in then? I'm actually so grateful that there is a third person here. That we don't just have Nephi versus Laman, so to speak. Or Helaman versus Corianton. And Corianton's great. He, he turns things around. We'll see that. But to have a third option, where is Shiblon in all of this? Of the three, honestly, in my case at least, I seem to resonate with Shiblon even more directly than the other two. I mean, I'll admit, there's a part of me that really wants to be Helaman. On my good days, I feel, oh yeah, I'm a Helaman kind of a person. Don't seem to be in many weaknesses there. But I think, really, The choice for most of us is, are we going to be Shiblon on our good days or are we going to be Corianton on our bad days? I don't know how many of us ever actually reach Helaman status. But to make sense of that comment, we need to make sense of Shiblon. Now, there are some commonalities between what we see here and what we've already seen with Helaman. It is coming from the same father, after all, who would have similar desires for all of his children. There are some common threads in a lot of patriarchal blessings or a lot of revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, even though they're to different people, because they're coming from the same source. God's ultimate goals for each of us are identical after all, but there are some differences that are profound. 
that really do apply to the individual in each case. Remember, Alma did address them each separately and for that reason. Now in verse 1, he says, My son, give ear to my words, which is exactly how he started his message with Helaman, establishing the relationship, my son, asking for full undivided attention, give me your ears. And an emphasis that though they were God's words, Alma had made them his own. For I say unto you, even as I said unto Helaman, so he's admitting, part of my message for you is exactly what I shared with your brother. And here it is. Inasmuch as ye shall keep the commandments of God, ye shall prosper in the land. And if you don't, you won't. You'll be cut off from his presence. That was exactly how Alma started in chapter 36 and ended in 36 as well. He ends his message to Shiblon in the same kind of way he ended his message to Helaman. In verse 15, he says, May the Lord bless your soul and receive you in the last day into his kingdom to sit down in peace. Now this phrase should sound familiar. Now go, my son, and teach the word unto this people. To Helaman, he said, declare the word. Here it's teach the word, same thing. And then he says, be sober, just like he did to Helaman before. My son, farewell. Same phrase to end both chapters. There's also a common thread in terms of sharing his conversion story which he does in verses 6 through 8. So a much condensed version of what he taught Helaman in chapter 36. Now perhaps he said a whole lot more, and Mormon is just condensing things in Shiblon's conversation more than he did back in Helaman's. Or perhaps it's Alma that's being a little more focused and concise here. But what I find most significant in Alma chapter 38 is what Alma says to his son Shiblon about that son's strengths and weaknesses and how they are connected to one another. This is a principle that is so important for you and me. So let's start with strengths, which is typically a good thing to do anyway, to build someone up before we offer them some constructive criticism. So in verse 2, Father says to Son, I trust that I shall have great joy in you because of your steadiness and your faithfulness unto God. You have commenced in your youth to look to the Lord your God. Now, what kind of parent wouldn't want to say that to their child? I shall have great joy in you. I've already seen your steadiness and your faithfulness. You've started so strong. From youth up, you have looked to the Lord, and you've been steady and faithful. This is my kind of guy. Kids, grow up to be like Shiblon. In verse 3, he says, I have had great joy in thee already because of thy faithfulness and thy diligence. Sounds like a repeat of verse 2. But then he also adds, And thy patience and thy long-suffering among the people of the Zoramites. Remember Alma had brought two of his sons with him on that mission to reclaim the apostate Zoramites? It wasn't just Alma and Amulek. It was three of the sons of Mosiah. It was Zeezrom. And it was Shiblon and Corianton. Helaman and Himni were the two he left back in Zarahemla to keep the church going. But this son was with him on that mission. Can you imagine being mission companions with your dad? And it was a hard mission trying to reclaim those with hardened hearts. In verse 4, he gets specific about why such patience and long-suffering was needed. He says, Thou wast in bonds. Thou wast stoned for the word's sake. But you bore all these things with patience. Shiblon should be getting higher and higher in our estimation. His faithfulness, his steadiness, his diligence, and at the same time, his patience, his long-suffering. doesn't seem to be complaining about the hard things that he endured. If we stopped there with Alma's description of Shiblon, I think he deserves in every way to rank right up there with the Nephi's or the Captain Moroni's that we have in mind. 
kind of a Mary Poppins of sorts, practically perfect in every way. And often I think that's the approach that we get when we think of Shiblon. Just a really good kid. We don't know much about him, but we know he was awesome. Well, that's true. But I think we can read a little deeper and see at least one area where Shiblon and you and I need to be careful. And that all revolves around verse 11, where dad says to his son, after having built him up and shown him all these incredible things about him, I'm seeing this in you, son. I'm not here to chastise you. I'm here to praise you. You're doing incredible things. What an amazing missionary you were. And I got to see it all firsthand. But I am concerned about this one thing. Verse 11, see that ye are not lifted up unto pride. Yea, see that you do not boast in your own wisdom, nor of your much strength. Yes, I know that you have wisdom, and yes, you have strength, much of it. But be careful about recognizing that a little too quickly yourself. Beware of pride. No wonder he says in verse 13, Do not pray as the Zoramites do. Remember the Ramiumptum prayer? Holy, holy God, we're grateful that we're better than our brothers. For ye have seen that they pray to be heard of men, and to be praised for their wisdom. Verse 14, do not say, O God, I thank thee that we are better than our brethren, but rather say, O Lord, forgive my unworthiness and remember my brethren in mercy. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. Okay, so Shiblon wasn't perfect after all. That's a relief since neither are we. So we have over here his strengths and over here his weakness. Steadiness, faithfulness, patience, diligence, all that good stuff but some pride issues, something to work on. At least it's keeping them from getting translated prematurely, right? But I want you to think about how those two lists fit with each other. Don't just separate them thinking, oh, here's his good things, here's his bad things. No, here's his things, and they have good sides and bad sides. And that's, in my opinion, the key principle we need to gain from Alma chapter 38. You see, remember what... Moroni teaches in Ether chapter 12, very famous verse, lots of people's favorite, that God can make weak things strong. I think that verse gives us all hope that I, I stink at this and I'm, I'm not what I would want to be in these areas, but God can make my weak things into strengths. Awesome. Well, if that's the good news, here's the bad news. It comes from President Oaks. In a talk he gave years and years ago, he warned our strengths can become our downfall. And then he gave some interesting examples of that. So take Moroni and Ether 12 and take Elder Oaks and combine the two. Our weak things can be made strong, but also our strengths can become our downfall. Well, wait. So if weak can go strong and strong can go weak, maybe there really is more of a connection between the two than I realize. I compare them to coins because a coin is a single object, but it does have two sides, a heads and a tails that are typically associated with winning or losing, right? A positive or a negative, a strength or a weakness, but it's the same coin. Don't keep them separate like, oh, here's the good things and here's some unrelated bad things. No, they're all related. It's all the same attribute, but that attribute has some potential positives and some potential negatives all at the same time. I learned this early on in my marriage after an experience where I hurt my wife's feelings. Completely unintentionally, I assure you. But you see, my wife is one of the tenderest, sweetest, most empathetic, feeling, sensitive people I've ever met. 
It's what makes her such an incredible wife and mother, sister, daughter, friend. She is with people and feels what they're feeling, sometimes even more than they do. Well, I said something early on in our marriage without thinking how it might be heard, especially how it might be heard by someone with very sensitive ears. You see, I don't have those kinds of ears myself. And she heard it a certain way, and it hurt her feelings. And I was like, wait, what? what? How? And what did you... And she tried to explain, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, ah, I'm so sorry. I did not mean for that to come across that way. I can see why, ah, please, please believe me that I didn't have any kind of ill intent. And when she finally recognized that I hadn't tried to hurt her feelings and gave me the benefit of that doubt, she apologized to me and said, I'm sorry, this was my, it was my fault. I took it the wrong way. I'm too sensitive. I need to change that. And it was one of those weird moments where it almost seems like the Spirit pauses time and allows you to see something, to understand something in an instant. And what the Spirit helped me understand is what life would be like if my wife were not sensitive. On the one hand, she wouldn't get her feelings hurt. I wouldn't have to be so careful about what I say, right? But without that sensitivity, I would lose that compassionate, tender, empathetic wife that I fell in love with. And I realized, do not throw away the coin. Yes, the tails has some potential negatives, but the heads is incredible. I never want to lose that. By the way, fast forward years, and we have several children that really struggle with some mental health challenges. And it makes our lives pretty intense. But even when things seem to get to their worst, it doesn't quite phase me or affect me in the same way that it affects my wife. And at one point she even said, honey, I'm finally seeing a value in your insensitivity. <laughs> you see what she's getting at? It's like, this doesn't hurt your feelings. When our kids go ballistic, you just kind of roll with the punches. You don't get on the roller coaster with them. I'm strapped right alongside them and it's driving me crazy just like it's driving them crazy. But you're the, just there on the platform watching us go over our loops and everything and turns and come back and go, okay, I'm here for you. She said, man, if you reacted to them the way I do, I think we'd both be crazy. And I laughed and I said, well, yeah, and if you reacted to them the way I did, then they wouldn't survive their craziness. Between the two of us, it's like two wrongs make a right. Or as I told her during a particularly intense phase of our children's mental health, I said, honey, for us to survive this and for our kids to make it through, I'm going to have to grow a heart and you're going to have to grow a backbone. Now that was too extreme for both of us and she knew that. I do have a heart. It's just tiny and shriveled compared to hers. And she does have a backbone. It's just kind of spaghetti-esque compared to mine. But between the two of us, we balance each other. And we even try to balance ourselves with the part that we might be lacking in. And that's the key. Harold B. Lee's daughter was once asked, what was it like to be raised by your parents? And she said, I'll always be grateful that I was raised by a father who was gentle beneath his firmness and a mother who was firm beneath her gentleness. That's profound. The dad was more firm and mom was more gentle, but both of them tried to develop the opposite attribute as a close second. So it's not just that, oh, between the two of them, I've got all my needs covered. Now that can end up pitting one parent against the other. Kind of a, which attribute will let me get away with what I want at a given moment. But rather, each had a natural strength. 
and then they try to develop the opposite in order to compensate for the associated weakness. Now let me explain what I mean by that. Back to this idea of a coin, heads and tails, on the same object, not disconnected or unrelated. It's not just a matter of, oh, I know I stink at this, but at least I have these good things going for me. Or, I'm so awesome at this, but these a couple of things will help me stay humble. No, they're inherently connected. I'm weak here because I'm strong here. Not despite the fact. It's because of. Same coin. My wife's sensitivity, which makes her loving and compassionate and empathetic, at the same time leaves her open to having her feelings hurt or being devastated by other people's situations, sometimes even more than they are. With my coin, the positive of my insensitivity, I don't get shambled over things. You can't hurt my feelings if you try. I remember once in my marriage, my wife said something to me, and I remember thinking, wait a minute, that, I think that could hurt my feelings. It, and I sat there with it, and I was like, is this what it's like to get your feelings hurt? Wow, I, I could really nurse this and, and feel bad about this for a while. Ah, nah, it's not worth it. And it took me like that long to just get over it and move on. Maybe that's why I'm semi-safe in studying the anti-Mormon literature that I do for my graduate program. Because it doesn't shake me the way it shakes a lot of others. Just like, ah, okay, that's your approach. I understand where you're coming from. I just don't agree. And I'm moving on. It doesn't throw me for a loop emotionally or intellectually. And I probably have my insensitivity to thank for that. I saw this all the time when I was in Tennessee training early morning seminary teachers. And I'd go in the early mornings to go observe their classes. And afterwards, I'd sit down and give them some feedback. And often, they would initiate the conversation with things like, oh, I'm the worst seminary teacher ever. I'm so horrible. I know. And they'd start listening. Off. They only saw the tails on their coin. And I often felt it was my job to flip the coin for them. Not to point out some secondary, separate kind of skill set. But rather, what you see as a weakness is actually an incredible strength. Those that said, oh, I have no discipline in my class. They just come in and they're just, there's, there's no order. I'm so sorry. And I'd respond, you know why that's the case? Flip the coin. Because they know that you love them. You're a people person. You're not a disciplinarian. You love these kids and they feel it. They are comfortable with you. They come in and they're just open. Yeah, kind of open mouth too, but open heart. And that is a beautiful thing. I've been to other classes where the heads of their coin was their discipline. Their classroom was a well-oiled machine, order from start to finish. But flip that, heads to its tails, and a lot of the kids in those classes were uncomfortable. They could not be themselves. They couldn't really ask their question. They could, if it would feel like they were stepping out of line. You see how heads and tails are related? Some would say, oh, I'm such a boring teacher. And I'd say, oh, and bless you for being so. Flip the coin. And because you're afraid that you just can't capture the attention you don't try to hog the spotlight, and you shine it on your students instead, and it's beautiful what they come up with. I've seen other teachers who their strength is their personality, their charisma. The kids love them. But because they are kind of the life of the party, they remain the center of attention. And the tales of that is the students don't have much room to grow and shine themselves. I mean, honestly, if you want an interesting mental exercise, some real significant introspection, Start to identify your own coins. Not, here's my strengths and here's my weaknesses. Rather, here is an attribute of mine. 
and what's its heads and what's its tails. Because if I'm faithful and turn it over to the Lord, he can take that tails and flip the coin. That's what Ether 12 promises. But if I'm not careful, then the adversary will take my heads and flip it to tails. Because that's what Elder Oaks was warning about. Now, in Shiblon's case, and I've never seen it spelled out in Scripture better than in Alma 38. Son, you are awesome. Here are the heads of your coin. You are steady and you are faithful. You are patient. You are diligent. And as a result, flip the coin. You've got to be careful about pride. I know these good things about you. So do you. And you've got to guard against letting those things get to your head. Or you'll end up like the Zoramites, thinking that you're better than anyone else. Because in so many ways, you have evidence that you are. Better at least in this skill or that attribute. But not better in terms of the worth of souls. And you've got to learn to measure deeper than the surface. It's like what he said back in verse 11. Don't boast of your own wisdom. I know you have it. If you didn't, there'd be nothing to boast about. Yours is a pride that does have a leg to stand on. You're an awesome kid. You've got so much wisdom. Just don't boast in it. You have so much strength. I've seen it. Just don't let it go to your head. I sometimes fear that all this diligence and this steadiness and this faithfulness as a missionary... Was it so that you would be heard of men or praised for your wisdom? Your strengths are so pleasing to people, but are you a people pleaser as a result? I love you, son. I just want you to be aware and beware of those potentialities. Once you start seeing that connection, then I think even in his praise for his son, there is gentle caution associated with everyone. Go back to verse 2. Instead of just waiting to see the most blatant weakness in verse 11 about his pride, see hints of it in everything Alma says leading up to it. Verse 2. You've been steady and faithful. And as you have commenced in your youth to look to the Lord your God, that's the good news, even so, I hope that you will continue in keeping his commandments. For blessed is he that endureth to the end. You see the caution there? Because sometimes pride leads to complacency. I'm already so far ahead of the rest of the pack. This is the tortoise and the hare, right? I'm already this far ahead. I can slow down. I had such an amazing youth. Does adulthood have to be quite as diligent? You see in verse 10, he comes back to that. And now as ye have begun to teach the word, you started so well. Even so, I would that ye should continue to teach. Keep it up, son. You see at the end of verse 12, when he says, see that ye refrain from idleness. I wonder if that's part of that potential complacency. He sure hasn't seemed idle to this point at all, right? It's diligence and faithfulness and steadiness that we've been seeing all through the first few verses. But you see the potential weakness there. If that coin flips over, do we start thinking that our diligence has been sufficient, that we've done enough? We just did it early. We packed another person's lifetime of diligence into a decade or two of really hard work. Maybe not even a few decades. 
So be, beware of that, son. Be, be careful about idleness. There's a great parallel in section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord cautions Oliver Cowdery, you did not continue as you commenced. You started so strong, Oliver, but you gave up early. This life was meant to be a marathon, not just a sprint, and you didn't endure. So that's one caution. Here's another. Back to verse 4. I know thou wast in bonds, yea, I know thou wast stoned for the word's sake, and thou didst bear all these things with patience. Now, so far, so good, right? But this next phrase is where you see the hint of the caution. Thou didst bear all these things with patience, because the Lord was with thee. And now thou knowest that the Lord did deliver thee. Now, we might just read that on the surface level and go, oh yeah, you were awesome and the Lord was with you and everything's great. I wonder though if Alma is gently teaching his son to know the reason why he did so well through his adversity. Kind of a credit where credit is due situation. The reason you were so patient, son, is because the Spirit granted you that patience. Remember, that's what Alma prayed for back in chapter 31. Prayed for himself, prayed for his companions, including his son Shiblon, that they could be patient because of the afflictions that would come upon them, because of the wickedness of the people. Well, it looks like that prayer was answered, but I wonder if he's worried that his son isn't recognizing that it was an answered prayer rather than simply an inherent attribute. You get that same idea of giving God the credit verse after verse here. In verse 5, Now my son Shiblon, I would that ye should remember that as much as ye shall put your trust in God, even so much ye shall be delivered out of your trials and your troubles and your afflictions, and ye shall be lifted up at the last day. Now that's a true principle for anyone to understand, but especially for someone who has so much flesh on their arm in which to place their trust, it's all the more essential to understand that their trust needs to be placed in God instead. He will carry you through those trials. He already has. Give him the credit and maintain your trust in him. In verse 6, he adds to this, Now, my son, I would not that ye should think that I know these things of myself. See, it's not about me either. It's the Spirit of God which is in me which maketh these things known unto me. If I had not been born of God, I would not have known these things. Now, he'd said the same thing to Helaman. But here to Shiblon, I really wonder if the emphasis is more on that, it's not me, son. It really is God. And the same is true of you. He gives God the credit again in verse 8, this brief version of his conversion story. I was three days and three nights in the most bitter pain and anguish of soul, and never until I did cry out unto the Lord Jesus Christ for mercy, did I receive a remission of my sins. Without him, I never would have gotten there. Try as I might. Who knows what he was doing mentally or emotionally through those three days, looking for some other way to overcome his anguish until he finally realized, I cannot do this on my own. I cannot extricate myself from my own iniquity. It's only going to be through Jesus. It's my only hope. So I cried to him, and not until I did so did I receive a remission of my sins. But behold, I did cry unto him, and I did find peace to my soul. Verse 9 then seems to be more pointed to this amazing son, encouraging him to do likewise. Now, my son, I have told you this, that ye may learn wisdom. Here's 
what real wisdom looks like. I know you have a lot of it. He says that in verse 11. But yours is the kind of wisdom you're tempted to boast in. This is the kind of wisdom that will keep you humble because you recognize that wisdom's source. I tell you this, that you may learn wisdom, that you may learn of me, that there is no other way or means whereby man can be saved only in and through Christ. I could find no way. I had no other means. It was only through Christ that I was saved. The same is true of you. Behold, he is the life and the light of the world. Not me, not you. He is the word of truth and righteousness. Not your words, no matter how true or righteous. You see what dad is doing for son here? For anyone with great gifts, with high potential. The potential for pride is equally high. So look higher and heavenward, and you'll see someone so infinitely above you that it cannot keep from humbling us to the core. Now, one of the things we need to realize about these coins is what causes the flip usually, and this is what's so tricky about it, the fact that they're inherently connected, it's the same object, what makes the head flip into the tails is overemphasizing the heads. That's the irony. Now, it's easy to see in terms of pride. Well, I, I focus on this positive thing and I become prideful. Yeah, but that's true of pretty much any virtue. It becomes a vice the moment it becomes extreme. We push it beyond a proper balance. It becomes unstable. It becomes top-heavy. We've overemphasized that strength and it flips over and becomes a weakness. Take justice, for example. A just person, an obedient person. Well, take that to the extreme. And does it flip over? Does it become judgmentalness? Does it become harshness and an, an overzealous strictness with self and with others that is so unrelentingly demanding? You've become Javert in Les Miserables. That is justice, a positive trait, a, a, a heads taken to the extreme that turns it to the tails. But the opposite is also true. Find someone who's merciful. And take that mercy to the extreme where it becomes excusing and enabling. No limits, no boundaries, no restrictions, no rules. So you can take order and extremify it. Is that even a word? It is now. Take order and it becomes in its extreme form some kind of tyranny. But take freedom and put it to its extreme form and it becomes anarchy. Think about it. Take any attribute, turn it to the extreme. And now you've seen how a heads can flip over to the tails. In Shiblon's case, look at verse 12. Use boldness. That's a strength. But not overbearance. That's a strength taken to the extreme. The most fascinating one comes next. And see that ye bridle all your passions, that ye may be filled with love. Now, I've often asked student groups in the past, especially those who know their Book of Mormon well enough, to know the three sons of Alma specifically Corianton's mistake. We'll see this next week. Corianton breaks the law of chastity on this mission. So I'll often ask these groups, without looking, which of Alma's three sons was told to bridle all his passions? And almost without fail, they'll say, oh, Corianton. I mean, he broke the law of chastity. He definitely had some passions that went unbridled. And he gave in to lust and was immoral. And when I say great thinking, I agree with that reasoning. However, Alma didn't say that to Corianton. He said it to Shiblon. 
And it's like their eyes open and they're like, wait, what? So did Shiblon have some immorality issues too? It's like, no, we have no evidence of that. In fact, it seems to suggest that the opposite would be true. He was so steady and faithful and diligent as a missionary. Then why would he need to bridle his passion? Oh, this is a different kind of passion. Coriantin struggled with physical passion. It seems that Shiblon is struggling with, or potentially struggles with, spiritual passion, zeal, which when taken to the extreme becomes overzealousness. He was just told, your boldness has the potential to become overbearing. This faithfulness on your part can become such a strict legalism that there is no room for anyone to repent. Your steadiness can become an inflexibility that makes it your way or the highway. Remember what he couples it with. Bridle your passion so you can be filled with love. He's not saying, don't be immoral here. That way you can be chased with your spouse later. No, he's saying to a diligent, faithful, steady, but zealous son, bridle your passion. A bridle doesn't kill the horse. It just controls it. You have such passion for the gospel. I love that about you, son. It's what made you an amazing missionary. But you've got to learn to bridle it. Why? Because you're teaching dissenters, apostates, inactives. You're surrounded with people that struggle, that don't have your strength. And as a result, you hate them. You judge them. You look down upon them. You're so glad you're not like them. And how can you help someone change when you don't love them at all? Again, son, I'm so grateful for your zeal, for that passion that's made you such a powerful servant of God. But unless you learn to bridle it, you'll never care for the people that you're called to serve. And they'll feel that. Hold on to your zeal, but balance it with love for the people that are less zealous than you are. How did Jesus do it? Perfect obedience and yet offering mercy to all of us imperfect sinners. Perfect knowledge, but allowing restraint to give us a chance to grow into our understanding of truth. Zeal and understanding. Passion and perfect love. It's amazing that Jesus had nothing but heads on his coins and made sure that none of them ever flipped over. They never became extreme in an unhealthy way. Now, how did he do that? And how do we? This goes back to the principle I've quoted in these videos several times already. That great statement from Joseph Smith that by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. That you find paradoxes to work with. And as you force those two opposites, not opposites like good and evil, but opposites like justice and mercy or faith and works, opposite goods, kind of complementary coins here. The coin itself already has its own opposition, right? Heads and tails. But that's not what I'm talking about. Contraries in terms of positive paradoxes, complementary coins, where this heads, the heads from coin number one, keeps coin number two from flipping to its tails. And heads on, on coin number two keeps coin number one from flipping to its tails. You see, if I have justice, then my mercy will never become enabling or excusing. But if I have mercy, then my justice will never flip over into judgmental, strict, 
Pharisaism. If I couple faith and works, prove those contraries, then my faith will keep my works from becoming prideful or self-sufficient, and my works will keep my faith from becoming lazy or complacent. You see how the two come together in that? Alma therefore gives his son the perfect contrary to prove in his particular situation. He gives it to him at the end of verse 10. And it's the solution to the problems he pointed out in verse 12. At the end of 10, he says, I would that ye would be diligent and temperate in all things. Did you catch the contrary? To be diligent. You already are, son. That's a coin where you have heads up. Steadiness, faithfulness, diligence. But I worry that it will become extreme if you don't guard against it. And it will flip over. And your boldness will become overbearingness. Your passion will become lack of love. So hold on to that passion. Hold on to that boldness. Hold on to that steadiness and faithfulness. Hold on to your diligence and add to it its contrary coin. Temperance. Where there's a balance there. There's a a way of reining in that passion. Bridling it so you can be filled with love. If you're temperate, then your boldness will never become overbearing. Because you know when to when to say that's, that's good enough for now. If you're temperate, then your passion will never lead to a loss of love because you see that people are doing the best they can and you can offer them patience. You see, if you balance these, your diligence will keep temperance from getting lazy and your temperance will keep diligence from becoming overzealous. That's how contraries work. It's almost like magnets. Once you get them lined up right, then they kind of lock into place. And this positive negative keeps this positive and negative in the right alignment. It keeps it from flipping over. So find the right set of contraries to prove. Things like justice and mercy, faith and works, urgency and patience, ambition and contentment, unity and diversity, spirit and truth. Iron Rod and Leahona, following the prophets and thinking for yourself. Remember we talked about this in, our, in the lesson on Alma 31, a mission that Shiblon was a part of, that many of the problems of those who ascended the Ramayamtam is that they had uncoupled contraries and they were only holding on to one side of them. I think dad is looking at this amazing son. I hope you don't think I'm trying to defame Shiblon in some way. I love this kid. And honestly, perhaps the reason I am so hyper-vigilant about his potential weaknesses is that they feel like they're mine as well. I'm not as good as he is in my heads, but I do fear the same tales in me as seem to be evident in him. I just, I just relate with Shiblon. When I was in high school, I was zealous. Growing up in LA as a religious minority, I loved being a Latter-day Saint and I wanted everyone to know about it. I'd gathered the LDS teammates on our football team together for a little team prayer. We called ourselves the Mormon Battalion. They even put a little picture of us in the back of the new era, back in the 90s. I studied the scriptures and religion all the time. I tried to share the gospel with my non-member friends, but I was a horrible missionary because I was all passion and no love. I was bold and overbearing. 
all diligence and no temperance. Talk to people of other faiths, like, do you know your own church's history? How can you possibly, you know, I, I was not, this was not winning friends and influencing people. It was running roughshod over them. I'd see friends that were members of the church breaking the commandments, going to parties and drinking or lowering their standards or doing things, and I would get so frustrated with them. Come on, you know better. What kind of an example are you setting? To put it bluntly, I was a judgmental jerk. Not to people's faces. I at least knew when to bite my tongue. But boy, did I judge them in my heart and feel superior to them and struggle with my own pride. The Lord blessed me with wisdom and strength, and I knew it. And I often ended up using it to be heard of men or to be praised for those things, thinking I was better than my brethren. When I wasn't, more than anything, it was my mission that helped cure me to what degree I'm cured of it, that it really is Christ who heals and lifts people. Because I kept finding myself unable to do that independently. I learned that it's only through him that he's the light and the life of the world, and that I'm not. And that even when I was able to pull it off and be patient in affliction, when I was long-suffering through trials, I realized that it was his strength that carried me through it. How did I know it was his? Because I knew it wasn't mine. Because mine had maxed out. I didn't have anything left in my tank. But somehow, we kept going. Sometimes God has to push us to our extreme and beyond it so that we can know, as Nephi learned back in his wilderness journeys, that it is by me that ye are led. I have to strip off the arm of flesh so you know that the only arm worth trusting in is God's. I'm so grateful that the Lord helped me learn some of that balance so that my strength would not become my downfall. Can you imagine what a horrible gospel teacher I would be to the youth if I was still the judgmental jerk I was as a youth myself? I would look with loathing at all of my students who were struggling instead of looking at them with mercy and love, realizing that but by the grace of God go I. It's come through recognizing my own weakness, including weaknesses that are natural outgrowths of my strengths, that I can now, at least on good days, say with Alma in verse 14, O oh Lord, forgive my unworthiness. No wonder I'm no better than anyone else, because I'm no worthier of your love than anyone else, because I'm not worthy of your love. That's why it's love that's coming. Not well-deserved gratitude, just undeserved love. Once I acknowledge my own unworthiness, then it's so easy to remember my brethren in mercy, because that's the mercy I need for myself. Yea, acknowledge your unworthiness before God at all times. If we'll do that, if we'll learn to balance things, prove our own contraries. Like I said earlier, if you want an interesting experience with introspection, brainstorm your own coins. Try to identify their strength and their weakness, their heads and their tails. Sometimes it's easier just to start with one. Think about something you're really good at and then carefully, cautiously, kind of lift it up and see what the tails is. What does it look like if I take this strength and put it to the extreme? What problems would that cause? Boom, you just saw the tails. Or if you're a little harder on yourself, maybe you start in reverse. Identify one of your weaknesses. It's probably all too glaring for you. You probably think about it all the time. 
but courageously, confidently flip it over. Ask the Lord to help you with it and you will see, wow, that is a blessing in disguise. Because of my struggle there, it's made me this. And that's a blessing, not just to me, but to others. And once you've started seeing your coins, your strengths and your weaknesses, see if you can start figuring out what the contrary would be that would allow things to flip and lock into place and stay heads up. If you're a just person, develop your mercy. If you're an intellectual and think everything through with the head, then start developing the heart and trust more in the feelings of the spirit because the head and the heart are a set of contraries too. If you're an extrovert and are so good with people, try to develop times where you and God alone can develop some of that inner spirituality and strength. And in reverse, if you're an introvert and prefer the vertical element of discipleship at the exclusion of the horizontal, then look for ways to live and reach outside yourself so that your discipleship represents the entire cross, both vertical and horizontal components. I am grateful for the Savior's example of perfect balance in all of these contraries. Coming unto him shows us how to strike that balance that will get us to the point where verse 15 becomes our reality too. Blessed by him, received into his kingdom, to do what? To sit down in peace. Peace with ourselves, peace with others, peace with him, peace in perfect balance. I am grateful for the relevance of scripture. I'm grateful for times where I open the page and it might as well be a mirror and see myself and the kinds of things that the Lord wants me to understand. So whether you're studying parenthood, like I did, whether you're trying to prove contraries in yourself, if you want the scriptures to be for your profit and learning, then liken them unto yourself, as Nephi first said. They are true. They are quick. They are powerful. And they are relevant. So keep studying. And we'll be back next week to meet Corey Anton, his message from Father. Whether or not our sins are the same as Corey Anton's will apply in our situation no matter who we are or what we've done. I'll see you then.